0: well good morning it is good to be back with you this morning on such a beautiful morning Uh, my family and I enjoyed a a week in Texas uh, visiting the rest of our family down there and of course our little grandbaby and we had so much fun with that little guy but it is it is good to be back and uh, so how are you guys doing great good yeah you probably hear that question so much that you don't give much thought to it you know like when someone asks me it's just such a common greeting how are you how are you doing I kind of have a standard response I don't even think about it my standard response is good thanks you know maybe you have one or good thanks how are you I just say it without really thinking but what if you had to give a truthful meaningful answer to that question how are you doing What would you say? It might depend a little bit on who's asking, right? If your doctor were asking you, how are you doing? That you might have one kind of answer. If maybe your accountant or financial advisor was asking you, how are you doing? Your answer might be different. Maybe if a pastor or elder were asking you, how are you doing? You might have a different answer yet. So... Let me ask you, as a pastor, how are you doing spiritually? Now, don't, don't answer it. <laughs> we can talk later. But think about that in your mind. How are you doing spiritually? And how would you know? How would you really know? There's really only one way to gauge how we're doing spiritually And that is to look into God's word and take our life and our thoughts and our actions and line it up with what God says in his word. It's the only standard, the absolute standard that we can compare our lives to. It's God's absolute truth. So I bring that up because this morning we're back in our series in Nehemiah. The series title, as you probably know, is Rising from the Ruins. And as we get into this text this morning, we're going to see a group of people who had this significant turnaround in their life. And it happened when they got into the Word of God. And they compared their life to what God says in His Word. And so the message this morning is titled An Honest Assessment. And we're going to go through Nehemiah chapter 9. And there's four simple parts to the outline. First of all, we, it's Part 1, they looked upward in verses 1 through 6. And then secondly, they looked backward in 7 through 31. They looked inward in 32 through 37. And they looked forward in verse 38. So we want to see this honest assessment. And just to recap, it's been two weeks. So last time in chapter 8, we saw that this physical work of restoring the walls of the city of Jerusalem was completed But now begins the spiritual work of rebuilding. Restoring worship to the nation of Israel. And the key verse was Nehemiah 8.8. I love this verse. It says they read from the book of the law of God. The word of God. Making it clear and giving the meaning. So that the people could understand what was being read. And their response to this we saw was this brokenness. A brokenness, a sorrow when they looked at what God wanted their life to be. And they looked at what it actually was. It was a brokenness that led to repentance. Repentance is a turning around. It's a changing of our mind that turns into a changing of our direction. That's repentance. And so this was their response. And then in verse 18 of chapter 8, it says, Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. And that brings us to where we pick it up here in chapter 9. And I want to first look at the fact that they looked upward. So this is a long text. We're going to just take it one or two verses at a time and, and, and work our way through it, but Chapter 9 verse 1 says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Now, this might seem like a weird thing, but this is how people showed, you know, sorrow, grief, mourning in their culture. The sackcloth was this coarse cloth. I think it was probably like burlap, something that was uncomfortable and itchy. And they put dust or ashes on their head. It was a sign of grief. And verse 2 says, those... Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their place and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Now, you have to understand that since they began to read God's word and and understand what it said, they began to make changes in their life. And one of these changes is a really important one that you see here in verse 2. They separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, this wasn't some matter of racism or bigotry. It was purity. It was for the sake of purity that they did it. See, before God even brought the Israelites into the land, he knew that they'd be surrounded by these pagan nations. And he warned them. He said in Deuteronomy 7, he said, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you. And you will quick, and, and he will quickly destroy you. And, and it continues. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, has, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. His treasured possession. See, holy, it means to be set apart. That's what it means in simple terms to be separate to be distinct and the whole story of Israel the nation of Israel is a story of God raising up a nation that was to be set apart separate his chosen people he gave them new regulations he didn't want them to look like the sinful pagan world he wanted this nation to be a reflection of his character That's the story of Israel. And we're going to see it unfold as they recount that history. In fact, he said to them, he said, be holy because I am holy. That was his command. Now, what about us? That was Old Testament. That was before Christ and the resurrection. What about us as New Testament believers, as the church of God? You know what? God says the same thing to us. We're to be separate from the world, not isolate ourselves from all of them, but in the sense of we're not to participate in the sinful things that the world clings to. In fact, Peter repeated the Old Testament command to the New Testament church in 1 Peter 1. He said, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That was God's desire for Israel and it's God's desire for believers today, for the church. That they look different from the world. That they be a reflection of God and his character. It's pretty popular today to want to be different, isn't it? To want to stand out. A lot of people want to stand out. And they want kind of to garner attention. But the question is, is it godliness or godlessness that sets them apart? Is it to draw attention to themselves or to the world? Or or to the Lord, excuse me. But God called Israel and he calls his church to be godly. To be set apart and to be godly. And so that's, that's what God wants for us as well as Israel. So in verse 3 it says they they'd separated themselves and then it says they stood where they were in red from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. They stood there in red for three hours. That's a quarter of a day. And then in response to what was heard, they confessed and they worshiped. And they did that for another quarter of a day, another three hours. Now, we might be running a little late with some of the announcements this morning, but we're not going to go six hours. <laughs> I promise. Just three. No. no, hopefully not. So this is the outline for what they did. It says they stood, and they read, and they confessed, and they worshipped. That's the outline. And now we're going to see the details of this. So starting in verse 4, it says, there's going to be a long list of names again. Standing on the stairs were, were the Levites, Yeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Kanani, uh, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pentahiah said... Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And what's going to follow in pretty much the rest of the chapter is going to be a prayer. It's a prayer that retraces the history of the nation of Israel. From their very beginning up through their exile and then their return back into the land. Right up to the time of Nehemiah. And so these these Levites are leading this prayer and all of the people are praying along with them. It continues, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessings and praises and all praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Look where it begins. This prayer begins with adoration. And it's an important place to start because it reminds us of who it is that we're praying to. We're praying to the Lord God Almighty. We're not praying to our little buddy-buddy. We're not talking to a genie in a bottle. We're praying to God Almighty. Now, yes, we're supposed to approach the throne of grace with confidence, but not with irreverence. And so this prayer starts with this adoration for God, for who he is. And so they begin by glorifying God. We use that term a lot. We sing about it, but what does it mean to glorify God? It simply means to make God bigger, to magnify him. That's what to glorify means. We sang the song, Lord Most High, which said again and again, be magnified, be magnified. Now, if you think about it, a pair of binoculars takes something that's distant And it brings it close and it makes it bigger. It magnifies it. But if you look through them backwards, it actually makes those things look further away and smaller. And meanwhile, the person looking through them looks really, really big. I think sometimes we get things backwards. We get it turned around. We look through the wrong end and suddenly... We make ourselves look big. We magnify ourselves and we don't magnify the Lord. And and this is why worship is so important. Worship causes us to remember who God is. It gives us the right perspective both on God and on ourselves. Worship magnifies God. It makes Him big. And it, and it reminds us of who he is and who we are. So they start with this worship. They're glorifying God. And then look at verse 6. It says, you alone are the Lord. That's who he is. And then it says, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. And the multitudes of heaven worship you. See, this is an acknowledgment that God is the creator. He made the heavens and the earth. He filled the earth with life. And it's a reminder that because you and I are made by God, we're also made for a purpose. And so we need to understand and follow God's will for us, not our own. And the Israelites failed to do this. They turned instead to material things. They adopted the practice of the pagans around them. The worship of idols. The worship of material things. They were consumed with themselves. There was like there was there was, uh, there was prostitution. There was even child sacrifice. That's what they had become. They denied God. And they denied him as the creator. And they denied his purpose for them. And don't we see the same thing happening today? A sinful society desperately wants to deny the creator. Why? Because if they can deny the creator, they can deny his purpose for the creation. And they can deny his rules for those he created. Remember the words of Fyodor Dostoevsky? He said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Think about that. If there is no God, there's no transcendent lawgiver. There's no rules. Man can make his own rules and he can do whatever he wants. Mankind in their sinfulness wants to deny the creator. And so this prayer begins by acknowledging God and acknowledging him as the creator, the giver of all life. They begin by looking up at who God is. And now it turns to what specifically he has done for Israel. They look backwards. They look at their past. In verses 7 through 31, and this is the bulk of the text. And it says in verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. Ur the Chaldeans was a pagan nation. God's nation started with one man, Abram, and he calls him out. And it says in verse 8, you found in his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give him, to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Abraham was a man of faith. Remember, this is the Old Testament. And even back then, righteousness came through faith. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. So this goes all the way back. God's raising up a nation, starting with one man whose wife was barren. And he says, multitudes will be blessed through you. See, it was through Abraham and Israel that would come Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So this history now moves from what's recorded in the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus as they're walking through Israel's history. Look at verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on their way on the way they were to take. Now, as I've been studying this passage the last couple weeks, one of the things that I just see in here over and over again is the names of God exemplified In the things that God has done. Let me just point this out to you. Because this is like a testimony of God's character. It's not just what he says he is. This is what God does. Take a look at verse 6. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens. And all their starry hosts. The earth and all that's in it. The seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything. Right away, two of the names of God in the Bible are creator and the Lord of life. And you see it right there. And then in verse 8 it says. You've kept your promise. Because you are righteous. See the Bible says. God's not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should change his mind. God cannot lie. He's faithful. He kept his promise. And two more names of God are. Faithful and true. And the righteous one. And then verse 9 it says. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry in the Red Sea. Some more. Names and titles of God. Compassionate and gracious God. Father of compassion. Okay, these are not just things God says. These are things God does. This is his very character. And in verse uh, uh, 11. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. What names of God come to mind there? How about almighty God, El Shaddai? That means omnipotent, all-powerful God. But the cool thing about God is he's not only all-powerful, but he's all-good. See, he only uses his power to do good things. He's not like us. And so he's morally perfect in all that he does. And verse 11 shows how he used his power to rescue the Israelites. He brings them out, and it it brings to the forefront other names of God, such as protector, provider, shield, strong deliverer. That's a good one. Even the God who avenges. You see, he hurled their pursuers into the sea. That was an act of divine, righteous judgment. And it, too, was good. This is the character of God. And then verse 12. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud. And by night with a pillar of fire. To give them light on the way they were to go. The way they were to take. God is our shepherd. Our guide is another name. He's the way. And look he led them by light. What What does scripture say? What does it call him? The light of the world. So throughout this text, you see these names of God and his character coming out, being exemplified in what he's done for Israel. And as they're praying, they're looking back and they're thinking about all that God has done and who God is. And they're worshiping him. In fact, Leo at verse 10 says, You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. I heard about a Sunday school teacher who asked her first grade class, what is the name of God? And one little boy in the back raised his hand. He said, well, that's easy. His name is Andy. And she looked at him and she said, well, what makes you think his name is Andy? He goes, well, we sing it all the time in church. Andy walks with me. Andy talks with me. (laughs) Andy led worship this morning. (laughs) Thank you, Andy, for, for leading worship this morning. You know, Matt was going to lead this morning we want to keep him in prayer his father is in a very very critical health situation and Matt couldn't be here Andy stepped up Andy led worship for us God's name isn't Andy and when it said you made a name for yourself it's not referring to the moniker we use to address God it's referring to his reputation and his renown his name Is everything that he is, everything he stands for, everything that he's done and everything he's going to do. That's the name of God. We say, you know, he made a good name for himself or he has a good name. That's a reputation. And so why is God so concerned about his name? God makes a big deal about his name throughout scripture. What's the purpose? Well, I want to show you. Just related to this very text, the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt... And into the promised land. And, and the part of that is captured in the book of Joshua. As they're entering the land and, and conquering these nations before him. And Joshua chapter 2 is the interaction of the Israelites with Rahab the prostitute. And, and let me just read you chapter 2 beginning of verse 8. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And there is a great fear and there is and a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Listen to this. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you and what you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. When we heard of it. Our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, now catch this, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. God's name, his reputation rooted in his power and character had spread throughout the land. These pagan nations heard of it. Joshua 4.24 says he did it, quote, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. That means to humble yourself in reverence to who God is. To submit to him. So we see throughout the Bible that God makes a really big deal about his name and making it known. Now just this morning we sang the song, At Your Name. And the lyrics say, At your name. The morning breaks in glory. At your name, creation sings your story. At your name, angels will bow, the earth will rejoice, your people cry out, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name. We sang that. God's name is still being proclaimed throughout the earth. Now somebody might think, well, wait a minute. The fact that God is so big about his name and his reputation, doesn't that make God self-centered and egotistical? Doesn't that make God the very thing that he tells us we shouldn't be? How would you answer that? Well, to answer it, you have to consider who God is and what he does. And we see it throughout the Bible and right here in this chapter in Nehemiah. God is love. He's faithful and true. He's compassionate and he's forgiving all of these qualities that we see. The ultimate blessing for any person Is to know God. That's the ultimate blessing. And that's why God strives to reveal Himself to mankind and to bring mankind back into a right relationship with Him. It's an act of pure love. Now, if there was some other source for all of that blessing and all of that love and all of that goodness, then the greatest act of love would be for God to make that source known. But it just so happens He is that source. And so love requires a self-revelation. It requires God making himself known to the people he created. That's the greatest blessing. and It's the greatest act of love. And it's what God has done for us. Not only through his word, but through Jesus Christ. So are you a recipient of his forgiveness and his grace and his blessing? You can be. In fact, God wants you to be. That's why he came. So this prayer next then, we see God's name and we're going to continue to see that. But next it focuses on what God did as he led him through the desert. This is history that's captured in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. It says in verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right. And decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant, Moses. You know what? We, I see more names of God here, including lawgiver and upright one. See, God's laws aren't burdensome regulations like these things that come out of Congress. God's laws are right and good and just. They're morally perfect. And God gave his law to mankind through Moses and the nation of Israel. Verse 15, in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. You see more names of God in there? How about bread of life? He's a bread of life, the spring of living water. Provider sustainer of my soul. See, God cared for this nation as he brought them through the desert. He provided everything that they need, as, as the scripture says, for life and godliness. But, but, that's how verse 16 begins. It indicates a contrast, and it's not a good one. It says in verse 16, But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked, And did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. This is what God's chosen people did in response. They became arrogant and obstinate. They did not obey. They refused to listen. They failed to remember and they rebelled. That's quite a resume, isn't it? This is what they did in response to God and his goodness. Verse 17. Begins with but again. Another contrast. Thankfully it's swinging back to the good. It says, but you are forgiving God. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Now what changes God's intervention with mankind from one of judgment to one of grace and mercy? What is it that flips that switch? It's repentance. Repentance. Again, repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. A change in the way we see God in ourselves. We align our thinking with God's thinking. And we align our will with his will. That's repentance. God, I've been doing it all wrong. I need to be doing it your way. It's turning from ourselves and turning to him. Now, The history of Israel is like this cycle of sin. And it goes around and around. The sin cycle. Not the spin cycle. But the sin cycle. They wander away from God. And they're oppressed. And they suffer greatly because of it. Because of their own decisions. And so they cry out to God. And then he would send them a deliverer. And then they become comfortable again. And complacent. And again would wander away from God. And the whole cycle would repeat itself again and again. You're going to see it several times in this text. And so, verse 18 even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine the way they were to take you gave your good spirit to instruct them you did not withhold you did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst for 40 years you sustained them in the desert they lacked nothing their clothes did not wear out nor did their feet become swollen see again and again and again we see god's mercy and his grace and how he treated this rebellious people now this doesn't mean that there weren't consequences for what they did. There were consequences. The generation of adults that came out of Egypt did not make it to the promised land. They spent 40 years in the desert and they perished before they could enter the land. It was the next generation that got to enter the promised land. There were consequences. But God was compassionate, forgiving, gracious, mercifully continued to provide everything they need. Well, I want to address something else in this text because this, this particular passage is often referred to, especially in the past few years. And, and so, verse 2, back to verse 2 for a moment, it says, They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. And in all these verses that follow, they're confessing the sins of their forefathers, Now, some people look at this prayer and they say that the church in America needs to confess the sins of their ancestors and their forefathers, their founding fathers even. In particular, I've heard it said that white Christians need to confess the sins of racism and slavery, the sins of our founding fathers, the sins of our ancestors. And churches are coming together in corporate confession and confessing and repenting of the sins of their forefathers. Is that right? Well, two things I want to point out. First, three things actually, the Bible is clear that each person is responsible for his or her own sin. Ooh, I'm behind on the slides. Each person is responsible for his or her own sins. If you want to check that out, read Ezekiel 18. It elaborates on the fact that if a father sins, but his son does not commit the sin himself, then he does not share in the guilt of his father. That's a quote. He doesn't share in the guilt of his father. Here in Nehemiah, the people who are doing the confessing had committed the same sins as their forefathers. They were just as guilty. And that's what they're confessing. And then secondly, another difference. In the Old Testament, God made his covenant, his agreement with a nation. And he said, if the nation is faithful, I'll bless them. If the nation rebels against me, I will will punish them. There'll be judgment. The whole nation was taken into captivity into Babylon because the nation, by and large, sinned. God's agreement, his covenant was with the nation. But in the New Testament, God's covenant isn't with America his covenant is with individuals who place their faith in Jesus Christ. It's an individual covenant. And so when we sin, we're responsible for our sin and none other. It's an individual covenant with God in the new covenant. Now, we can still come along and intercede on behalf of others. It's a good thing to do. And so we can pray that the Lord would bring conviction leading to repentance and forgiveness and healing, but we're not to We're not guilty of their sin, and we don't have to confess and repent of the sins of someone else. If we've been guilty of actions of racism or even attitudes of racism, that we need to confess. But we're not responsible for confessing the sins of someone else. So I just want to make that clear because I think this passage is often misapplied. So now we come to where God is bringing Israel into the land he promised. It says in verse 22, You gave them kingdoms and nations allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them before the Canaanites who lived in the land. You you handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. Do some more names of God come to mind here? How about King of Kings? We see that in this text: Mighty God, mighty warrior, avenger, righteous judge. See, as long as the Israelites were faithful to God, then he gave them victory over the pagan nations, and he used them to judge those nations. God told Israel plainly, though, that with obedience comes blessing, and with disobedience comes judgment and cursing. He warned them. And God is still the same God today. He hasn't changed He offers his blessing to all people, even though many of them turn away. They rebel against him. Look at at the blessing that Israel experienced as they came into the land. It says in verse 25, they captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possessions of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Man, they were fat and happy when, they, when God brought them into this land that he promised them. Now, you'd like to think that they learned their lesson. They said, man, God is God. And when I just submit to him, good things happen in my life. He blesses me. Why would I want to turn to pagan pursuits? Why would I want to do that? You want to think they learned their lesson, right? Did they? No. No. <laughs> the cycle repeats again here they are they're in the land they're fat and happy verse 26 but they were disobedient and rebelled against you they put your they put your law behind their backs they killed your prophets who admonished them in order to turn them back to you they committed awful blasphemies here we go again they rebelled and they forgot You know, it's been said that prosperity is like a drug that puts the soul to sleep. We become fat and happy, and all of a sudden, the things of God don't seem to matter so much to us anymore, do they? We got a nice 401k. We got a good income, a beautiful house. We're doing well. We're well fed. And and this still small voice of God just seems so dull to our ears. Well, these, the Israelites fell asleep spiritually, but guess what? The exile, the taking them captive by Assyria and Babylon and into, uh, taking them captive into Babylon, that was a wake-up call. God wanted to get their attention. They had fallen asleep spiritually. It says, so verse 27, So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you, From heaven you heard them. Here we go. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. This is God's last resort. These prophets, you read the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're going, Come on, people! Don't do this. This is going to be the consequence if you turn away from God, the source of all blessing and goodness. But they did it anyway. And so kind of the final straw for God is he takes them into exile. But, another but, verse 31, But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. God would have been totally right and just to just go. Torture them right there. They're gone. I'm done with this nation. You know what? He'd be right and just to do that with us too. But he doesn't. He's a God of mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness. What is it that flips the switch? Repentance. So again, prosperity is like a drug that puts the soul to sleep. We see this in Israel and we see it all around us in America, don't we? you got to see some real close parallels to what was happening in Israel and what's happening here in our own country. You know, all of us are familiar with the Thanksgiving holiday, right? We like it. We gorge ourselves. And it began by the proclamation of Abraham Lincoln in 1863. But did you know that earlier that same year, he made another proclamation? It wasn't a proclamation of Thanksgiving and feasting. It was a proclamation of fasting. He appointed a national fast day. Now listen to what he said in this proclamation. He said this. He said, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. Amen. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which persevered us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace Too proud to pray to God, to the God that has made us. Wow. If that were the case in 1863, (laughs) what do you think about today? How do you think God looks at United States of America today? It's a scary thought. I wonder how and when our wake-up call will come. I think it'll be far worse than a little pandemic, personally. Maybe it'll be a complete financial collapse as all financial policy is abandoned. (laughs) You know, the, the, the wisdom of God. Maybe it'll be another war. I don't know. It's good to think about those things, but we're not to be petrified at the thought of that. See, even when God took the nation of Israel captive, he protected and preserved those who were faithful. Daniel's a good example of that. Nehemiah is a good example of that. God will protect those who are his. Those whose faith is in him. But for the rest of America and the world. There is judgment coming. So they look back. Let's look quickly now at how they looked inward. Verse 32. Now therefore. Now therefore. O our God. The great, mighty, and awesome God. Who keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. What is this hardship he's talking about? We're going to see in a minute that even though they're back in their own land, they're still being ruled by foreign kings. And that's the source of this hardship. Verse 33 In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave us. Sorry, I just had a Microsoft moment, an Apple moment here, and it flipped up. We're slaves in the land you gave us. We're slaves, we're slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. See, for almost four centuries, up until the time of Nehemiah, they had been ruled by foreign kings. First it was the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians. And soon it'll be the Greeks and the Romans, foreign rulers ruling over them. It it would be Alexander the Great would conquer them. And and then the Romans, as I said, and God warned them about this too. He said it would happen if they turned away from him. Let me read you one verse, 2 Chronicles 12.8. It says that, it would happen, quote, so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of the other lands. God wanted them to learn an important lesson. The people recognize the people repenting here recognize that they deserved this judgment of God, and even worse. Who do you serve? Is something to think about. Who do you serve? Do you serve the Lord or do you serve material things, false gods? Bob Dylan had that song, you're going to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody, you know. That's what he said. He said, they may call you a doctor, or they may call you a chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. See, here's the thing. Unless you're serving the Lord, nothing that you are laboring for will last. It won't. But you will serve somebody. Verse 37. Because of our sins. Our sins. These are the people talking. It's abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. They're in great distress. Why? Because these foreign kings were exacting taxes and tributes and, and, and duties upon them. Even most of the fruit in this bountiful land, it should have been theirs. It was going to these foreign kings in the form of taxes and duties. And so they're saying, we're in great distress, God. Yeah, we're back in our land. But... These kings are ruling over us. And you know what? We deserve it based on all that we've done. We've sinned and we deserve it. God said to them in Deuteronomy 28. He said, a people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce. And you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. He said, don't go down this path. Don't turn your back on me. This is what's going to happen. And lo and behold, it comes to pass exactly as God said. So they're in great distress And finally, they looked forward. Verse 38, one verse. It says, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. And that's where the chapter ends. We're going to see next time. What have they done? They, They looked at God. And they looked at his word. And they said, man, our life doesn't square with that. Look at what we've done. we got a holy, gracious, merciful, forgiving God. And look, we've rebelled. We've turned against him. We've put his laws out of our mind, behind our backs. We've done our own thing. We've denied our creator. And we deserve the penalty that we're paying. What is the ultimate penalty for that? It's complete separation from God and all of his goodness. That's what hell is. All you got to do is just take away God and all of his blessing and all of his goodness... And what do you have left? Hell. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. And so here, we're going to see next time that the people commit themselves in writing and they seal it. They commit themselves to obedience to God and his word. They have a complete turnaround, a repentance. Well, just wrapping this up. God is a God of second chances. And third chances and fourth chances. We've seen like six chances just in this chapter. He says in Second Chronicles, If my people, you know this verse, right? If my people, if the Americans who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's a promise from God. So how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? I want you to do an honest assessment. Take your life and line it up with the word of God and what he says. What his purpose and his will is for you. How are you doing? I think if we're honest, every single one of us has places where our lives don't line up with God's word. And he wants to call that to our attention. And he wants us to repent. He wants us to confess, admit it. And he wants us to turn from that way of thinking and think like God thinks and follow him and do his will for our lives. This is what God wanted for the Israelites. It's what he wants for us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know I see a lot of myself in these Israelites. In my stubbornness, my tendency to turn away from you. As the song says, prone to wander, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. But yet. As we look into your word, not just Nehemiah, but God, as, as our men this week, open your word. on and, and as in homes, we open your word and we study. And the women, I know the summer Bible studies are winding up. But God, as we get into your word, I pray that you would show us the things that are not right in our lives. That you'd impress them upon our hearts. And God, that you'd bring us a sense of brokenness. Brokenness that leads to repentance. Thank you, God, that you're a God of forgiveness and mercy and compassion and grace through Jesus Christ. He was all that we could not be. And he stood in our place so that we could stand in your presence, declared righteous. So, Lord God, help us to move forward with a new commitment to live in obedience to you and to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.